when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. Following the sad passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II earlier this year, we felt it would be an interesting time to talk about the recent monarchs. How the monarchy has survived in Britain, where in so many other countries it has withered and died or been violently terminated. As Britain comes to terms with life after Elizabeth, what state is the monarchy in and what can history tell us? We talk to the award-winning journalist and author Stephen Bates. He was royalty and religious affairs correspondent for The Guardian for years. He's just written a book called The Shortest History of the Crown. He's the man to talk to. We start with Victoria. We end up with Charles. Enjoy. T-minus 10. Atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. God save the king. No black-white unity till there is first some black unity. Never to go to war with one another again. And lift off, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Stephen, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Good to be with you, Dan. What's so striking in the period that you talk about in this modern period is how so many other nations and empires around the world got rid of their hereditary heads of state. And yet somehow the British monarchy survives intact. Big question. Why do you think that is? Well, the first and most straightforward answer, I suppose, is that um, Britain was seen to have won the wars it partook in. The French had uh, lost their monarchy um, really after the French Revolution. The Russians lost theirs in the First World War with the Russian Revolution. So Britain had a monarchy at the head of its state, and the state was perceived to be victorious, so that always helps. I think the monarchy in the early half of the 20th century was also quite fleet-footed in moving in a sort of conciliatory direction, I suppose, the story about the change of the surname during the First World War from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor, which uh, seems now like a fairly straightforward and maybe even trivial thing to do, but actually was quite a symbolically important thing, I suspect, for the monarchy, especially as the king then effectively refused asylum to the Tsar's family, where that would have aroused certain difficulties with public opinion, I suspect. But what about the individual performance of these monarchs as well? Victoria, Edward, Elizabeth II, both Georges, they were quite deft operatives, weren't they? Yes. The Queen's 
most commonly used phrase is you have to be seen to be believed. It's no surprise that the most unpopular period, probably in the last 150 years for the monarchy, was when Queen Victoria retreated into seclusion following the death of her husband, Prince Albert. Lord Salisbury, her prime minister, said that um, the popularity of the monarchy required a constant uh, revelation. They needed to be seen. And certainly after Victoria, the monarch has always been a public figure. They haven't retreated behind the walls of either the palace or the castle. I think that plays an important part in uh, the mystique of the monarchy and its continued popularity. There is a sense of cultivation of a sort of middle-class propriety, that they're like the rest of us, only not quite like the rest of us. They dress in clothes which are recognisable. They speak in tones which are understandable. They're accessible to the general public in a very limited way, but with the illusion that they are much more close to their subjects than uh, might otherwise be the case. And do you think, really, from Victoria, I mean, Victoria's dodgy uncles accepted, but her grandfather, George III, ruled as a monarch. And from Victoria, has there been an acceptance of their reduced role? Have they managed their own political decline, certainly far more effectively than many of their cousins, literally cousin monarchs elsewhere? Yes, that's absolutely true. I Victoria is the last monarch really to have expressed an opinion on an item of legislation. She's the last monarch to have attempted to change the government of the country, which she did temporarily successfully in the 1830s, but that's nearly 200 years ago now. And by and large, the constitutional settlement has been accepted by both her and her successors. They may have demanded a sort of appreciation of their role. They may have been a bit sniffy about paying tax and uh, making sure that their privileges are more or less maintained. But by and large, they've accepted, and probably quite relievedly, the fact that they're a decorative, ceremonial part of the executive of Britain and the uh, 14 other realms across the uh, old empire. And so I think they're Acceptance has been an important part in their absence from political partisanship. Surely her reign is important in that respect. Well, all that direction is set under Victoria's reign, isn't it? I mean, she's activist at the beginning. She's able to choose her prime ministers. By the end of the reign, there's no suggestion that she's able to do that. Was that just forced upon her? Was that something that she went along with? How... Active or passive was she in that process? She um, was increasingly passive, certainly following the death of uh, Prince Albert. Albert was probably the most significant royal of the last 200 years in that I think he played a considerable part in persuading her that she was not an absolute but a constitutional monarch and changing the frame of the royal family from a remote institution uh, not seen a huge amount in public to one which was very common, very easily recognised. Lots of photographs taken of the royal family in more or less formal and informal poses from the 1850s onwards. So for a start, everyone knew what the Queen looked like and her statue decorated the empire from Calcutta to Canterbury. 
So the change to a ceremonial and a sort of respectable monarchy really developed during Queen Victoria's long reign. And it was partly to fill the void that she left for a considerable period of the latter half of her reign when she didn't want to do anything, didn't see why she should go out in public, despite what everyone was telling her she needed to do. Edward, the playboy prince, turned out to be a half-decent monarch, Edward VII. I've always been quite impressed with him. Yes, I think so too. He was more serious than uh, people were expecting. He did his duty. It was partly because Queen Victoria had allowed him absolutely no part in constitutional affairs. He wasn't allowed to see state papers. He wasn't allowed to take uh, a role which supplanted her while she was out of commission. And instead, he filled his time with what he obviously thought and people did believe were good works. A lot of them involved going to dinners and opening hospitals and things, things that uh, the royal family have done ever since, but which they hadn't really done in public before that. So he was known to the public. He was known in a slightly saucy way. People knew he'd appeared in court twice giving evidence. They knew he had a racy reputation. They probably knew that Queen Victoria didn't think very highly of him. So anything that was positive came as a bonus. And he did play a significant part both in helping secure the uh, Entente Cordiale in France with France in 1904, uh, subsequently in at least nominally agreeing to um, the Liberal government's reforms shortly before he died. He uh, certainly would have caused great controversy for the Conservative opposition unless he offered a way for the Liberals to unblock the parliamentary um, cork. Well, speaking of unblocking parliamentary courts, you've got George V, who was a real Tory, and people are rather rude about his his kind of intellect. But, I mean, he kept the show on the road through probably the darkest periods of modern British history. You've got at least one constitutional crisis. You've got the civil war in Ireland threatened to break out in 1914, the First War actually breaking out. And he does pretty well. Yeah, I think he does. He was rather surprised at the end of his reign when he had the Silver Jubilee in 1935, a few months before he died, to see the crowds that turned out to cheer him, saying, goodness me, I didn't realise I was so popular. When he died in early 1936, there were popular ditties about losing our dear old dad. So he, whatever his private manner and his manner towards his children was not exactly um, cuddly. Whatever that private persona was, the public persona of an avuncular and rather cheery old naval type went down very well with the British public. And I think it is true that with all the things that were happening around him, not only the First World War, of course, all the loss of Ireland, but the Great Depression, the general strike, that turmoil, the formation of a national government to deal with an economic crisis. He was a permanent and continuing fixture. During the First World War, that sort of importance of the crown setting an example in the media age. He had his bath no deeper than the lads on the Western Front. He gave up alcohol. I find all that quite striking. Yeah, and it's rather touching, isn't it? Yeah. Particularly when you think um, that other monarchs at the time 
lost popularity and eventually lost their thrones precisely because they didn't assume the manner and the living conditions of their subjects. It's all very limited, of course. He still had Buckingham Palace, although it was rather cold and drafty, and they only had one electric light bulb in any given room. But he showed he was sharing the burdens of ordinary citizens. Compare and contrast Boris Johnson's famous parties at Downing Street during COVID and the reaction the public showed that they really didn't like that. They thought he was doing a them and us routine. George V certainly made sure that that wasn't the image of the monarchy even a hundred years ago. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the monarchy. More coming up. Gone Medieval is History Hits podcast dedicated to the greatest millennium in human history. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, a Viking Age bioarchaeologist and author. And I'm Matt Lewis, a medievalist and writer. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll talk Vikings, Normans, Popes, rebellions and so much more. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, his son, Edward, seemed to lack much of that good sense 
Edward VIII never crowned, but did, of course, become king on the death of his father. In fact, let's talk about the death of his father before we leave George behind. One of the most remarkable moments in history. What happened to him? Uh, Yes, his end was speeded through the judicious use of morphine by um, his doctor, who thought it was not appropriate that the monarch's death should be recorded first in the afternoon, evening newspapers and should appear first in the Times, which, of course, was printing up until midnight or early hours of the morning, so could get in the final editions, how things change. It was not known for a great many years that his passing, which the BBC famously said was drawing gently to its close, had been actually accelerated. Goodness knows what would have happened in previous generations and centuries if uh, it had been known that the king's doctor was deliberately putting him to sleep. His son, Edward, a little bit like his grandfather, his namesake, a wild prince, and there was great concern that he wasn't fit for the throne. Yes, George V famously told Stanley Baldwin, the prime minister, that the lad will ruin himself within a year. And he was just about right, because his reign lasted for about 10 months. And as you say, he never got crowned. He was monarch, but he hadn't gone through the coronation ceremony. And I think um, people certainly now draw a massive sigh of relief because he was, by all accounts and to all intents, over-friendly with the Nazis. Goodness knows what would have happened if he'd been on the throne three years later. Did he get sort of chucked out against his will or did he not want the job? I think he probably did want the job. The royals tend to like the trappings and he was certainly someone who liked the trappings of authority. He liked the fast cars, he liked the flunkies, he liked the um, celebrity that went with it. I'm not so sure that he was terribly keen to do the job and he certainly miscalculated over the acceptability of Mrs Simpson. My parents were of a generation which could remember the abdication and it was a toss-up in my mother's opinion whether um, the chief strike against Mrs Simpson was that she was American or that she had been divorced several times. Both of them contributed to the image of a scarlet woman, and that didn't help when the crisis came. Had the media been perhaps a bit more intrusive, there might have been more time for the king to present Mrs Simpson as someone it was acceptable for him to marry. The crisis, when it finally erupted, was over in about a week. So in the state of the media in those days, there was not a great deal of time to summon a king's party to uh, defend Edward and his choice of a bride. We've got then his younger brother, the Stammerer, famously, King George VI, comes on the throne. Again, how reluctant was he? Do we buy into that fairy tale that he and his wife just wanted a quiet life, or do we think that there was ambition there? I think he did want a quiet life. I mean, he was notoriously stilted in his public appearances, as we all know from the King's Speech and all that. And certainly if you see the newsreels of him making speeches at the time, it is a painful thing to watch. He burst into tears when he was told that his brother was abdicating, and yet the sense of duty which runs like a thread through the certainly the House of Windsor was strong enough for him to not only stay at his post and be a figurehead during the war, but also for him, 
by and large, to accept the constitutional constraints on him. It's known now that he was in favour of appeasement and that he didn't particularly want Churchill to succeed Neville Chamberlain. But he certainly didn't make that particularly well known at the time. There was the grave mistake, actually, of welcoming Neville Chamberlain back from Munich on the Buckingham Palace balcony. Chamberlain himself realised it was a mistake later. But by and large, he fulfilled the constitutional position of the king to lead his nation and to share their deprivations. Nothing destroys or undermines the authority of the monarchy more than a sense of entitlement. And you can see that with Prince Andrew maybe today. There's a sense of being owed something rather than applying duty to uh, the job that you've been thrust into. Stephen, his daughter, Elizabeth, people will now be very familiar after the events this year with her career and life. How did she steer the monarchy other than just living a long time, how did she steer the monarchy through some potentially very, very turbulent times? She was a remarkable example of passivity. She didn't really direct events. In fact, changes to the monarchy rather happened to her. She went along with them rather than initiating them. And maybe that's a good thing for a conservative institution, to be sufficiently flexible, but insufficiently dynamic to uh, change the character of the monarchy. And I'm sure that her long reign coming to an end will lead people to appreciate the fact that she didn't meddle. She wasn't a dynamic monarch. Unlike Elizabeth I, it's not really ever been called an Elizabethan age. Did she do anything? Did she move the needle? I mean, I'm always very frustrated at these prime ministers who maintain this dignified silence about what happens between them and their monarch, because as a historian, he's desperate to know. Do you think she did advise? Do you think she comes to a particular point of view? I'm sure she did advise. I'm sure she was pretty discreet in what she advised and how she advised it. Her relations with her prime ministers are largely um, gossip and rumour and innuendo. As I say, I don't think that... She initiated change, but she certainly went along with change. If you think what Britain was like at the start of her reign in 1952, when the BBC announced the death of her father over the radio, shockingly, one February morning, people actually stopped their cars in the street, got out and took their hats off. Can you imagine that sort of deference and sort of religiosity happening today? She wasn't allowed to meet divorcees because that was regarded as frightful. At the end of her reign, you know, she was having a podcast. She was doing Facebook, all sorts of modern things. She went along with television documentaries, something that would have been pretty unthinkable before her reign started. These were not initiatives that she came up with, but they were Certainly ideas that were pressed by her husband, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, who was very keen to have, for instance, more television access. The famous 1968 documentary, The Royal Family, was an example of that. Looks a bit stilted and naive now, but was extraordinary at the time. Huge audience, people thinking that they were seeing the Queen as informally as she would normally be seen. And 
as we know, that wasn't actually the case, but it was the sort of initiative that had television been more widely available in earlier reigns, I doubt very much that monarchs would have gone along with appearing on the silver screen. Will the future of the monarchy depend on the characters of the monarchs, or will it all be sorted out in terms of the changing world, culture, ideas about religion, education, all that kind of thing? I think it will depend on the character of the monarch. We already know, if things don't change, who the heir was, who uh, his heir will be, and who his heir will be. So theoretically, if Prince George lives as long as his great-grandmother, then the monarchy is proceeding into the next century. I think it depends very much on keeping the traditional watchwords of the monarchy, duty, respect, selflessness. These are attributes that have enabled the monarchy not only to modify its nature, but to um, thrive. It is still the most popular institution in the country. It could easily all go wrong, and it really depends how well Charles and William have imbibed the uh, royal duties. Stephen, thank you very much for mulling all this over in a momentous year. You've written The Shortest History of the Crown, so everyone head out and get that. Stephen Bates, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thank you, Dan. It's lovely to speak to you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.